Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rose irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market hi mike yeah, Matty. What's the taxonomy for Homo sapiens or humans? Okay, uh, it starts at domain, and our domain is uh, Eukarya. Then it goes to kingdom, which is uh, Animalia. Then it goes to phylum, which is Chordata. And then it goes to class, which is Mammalia. Stop! Mammal time! Welcome everybody to Dr. Matt and Dr. Mark's Medical Podcast. Today we're talking about mammals, but specifically we're talking about mammaries. Which are? Well, mammaries and mammary glands is what allows us to be classified within that class of mammals. We're talking about breastfeeding and lactation. Do you know why we're talking about breastfeeding and lactation today, Matt? Well, I'm guessing because you just had a baby. I did. I had a little baby Congratulations, Mike. Thanks, mate. I had. And all the listeners are... Stoked for you. I can hear them now. Uh, applauding? Yes. Cheering, crying. Well, that's either background noise or applauding on the show. I think what. it's the air conditioner. Air conditioner. Uh, so, yeah, had a little baby girl last week. Baby Tia. Tia. What do you call her? Tia Todorovic. Because it's TT, we call her Titty. Titties, yeah. which is also and a good my little, yeah, perfect for today. So, Titty and new baby. So, we're going to talk about the breast. breast talk about feeding. the breast, breastfeeding, lactation, anatomy, physiology, and so forth. Um, Anything else of importance today? Well, we're going to have a special guest today. Wow. And our special guest is a midwife and a nurse, and she's going to help us Big talk about... Big hospital in Brisbane? Yes, absolutely. She's going to help us talk about uh, breastfeeding for the expecting mother, or maybe the currently breastfeeding mother, such right. as my partner. So that's not our area of expertise, so we're going to bring in an expert to talk about that side of things. Yeah, so Rose will come in uh, after we talk a bit about anatomy and physiology and talk about some of the the uh, social implications of breastfeeding. Right. So, let's start with the anatomy. Or, well, let's start with the embryological development of the breast. What do you think? Well, actually, I would prefer to Typical. start Typical. where... Do we should probably... We should prepare. <laughs> I think before we do a podcast, we should sit down and have a conversation about what we're going to talk about. So, what would you like to do, Matt? What I'd like to do? Well, I always ask myself, or at least um, for the last week mm. <laughs> <laughs> so for the last week you've asked yourself um, particularly with um, Titty coming into the world yeah little Titty little Tia yeah um, why do you think animals need breasts I mean like I just wonder why do you think we evolved to need to have breast and breastfeeding and lactation I just assumed it was a way to feed the young yeah so um, obviously as you went through at the start yeah. all like Life on Earth starts kind of in the domain. So yeah. for us, we have a nucleus and then we become animals. Well, 
obviously plants and so forth, and then we go to chordata, which is vertebrates. But then we get to our one, which is mammals. So yeah. why did mammals split off, or what selected for them to become? Oh, so now we're talking about evolutionary biology. Yeah, yeah. So what made mammals mammals and other classes whatever they may be? Exactly. So what was the selection for needing to lactate? So, my question know. to you, Michael. Yeah, go on. Breasts yes. are obviously in the... Uh, I call it... Uh, what's, the, what's the word? <laughs> <for> <laughs> what's the word for studying the bones and all that stuff? Studying bones? Yeah, like in fossil records. Like <laughs> archaeology. <laughs> archaeology, there you go. <laughs> um, That's so not the study of bones. Isn't it? No, archaeology is just... Well, I... Isn't it just not study the bones, but just uh, looking at fossil records to see, you know, certain traits and so forth of um, evolution and so forth. Okay. Now, obviously, with um, the breast, it's soft tissue, so you're not going to really be able to find that in fossil records too well. Oh, good know? point. Yeah. So it's a harder thing to kind of establish. Yeah. But there's hypotheses out there <laughs> of suggesting what the advantage is. So for maybe from a histological point of view, where do you think the breast or the breast tissue came from, evolved from? Don't know. Developed from, well, uh, well, is it well? Is the breast tissue always located on the um, anterior, so, or, or I should not say the anterior, the um, ventral surface of mammal or mammals, or all the mammary, yeah, all I the mammaries on the ventral a, surface? I think there's a, like a, a mammal line that runs down the anterior surface or the ventral surface of uh, mammals, or at least as far as I'm aware, I'm potentially is that conserved? There's uh, Potentially exceptions to it, but I think that's there is a line that runs down. So, uh, in animals, that we have this line where the the nipples or the teats will sit. Mm. Um, so I think that's possible. But I guess what I was getting at is the breast actually developed out of an accessory um, part of the skin. Okay? okay. So it's an accessory organ or an accessory gland gland exactly of the skin. So it's actually designed to secrete something, just like you would say have sweat or you would secrete uh, oil. So is it like a modified sebaceous or yeah, like ecrine that. gland yeah, of so some they, sort? So they hypothesize that it's a, either a, a modified sweat or sebaceous, or like an oil gland. Yeah. And now it's thought in the, as we've transitioned into mammals, so let's say from egg-laying animals, um, the both males and females, um, but so both sexes, had this modified gland and it really just secreted um, certain um, antibodies or antimicrobial agents. As so you're saying egg-laying animals, which you're saying evolutionarily speaking are older than us. So you're saying prior to mammals, right? we had egg-laying animals. We yep. still do. We but still do. Like but reptiles, birds. They're older. Yep. Older in the older. evolutionary sense. That's right. Yep. And you're saying that They've got some modified glands of some sort, or at mm. least they had some modified glands of some sort. I don't know if they still do, which secreted what? Uh, antibodies. So antibodies. Yeah. Or antimicrobial agents. And so what the, the baby would be born, new hatchling, snuggle up to mum, snuggle up to dad, probably leak or somehow ingest these secretions. Yeah. And it would kind of prime their immune system protect them from the outside world. So it wasn't a nutritional thing? No, not nutrition at all. Oh. And so that was the primary benefit of this type of secretion. And so then what I would imagine is some animals would have produced a greater volume of this secretion. And so then it would have become a nutrition source. And so then the advantage would have been as a baby, you're now licking or suckling or ingesting this fluid which is not only beneficial to stop you getting sick infected um, but also priming your immune system probably also priming your uh, gastrointestinal tract like with good flora um, but then now giving you some nutrition and so now we look to certain animals that are the bridge so what's the bridge between the mammals and the egg layers we have those we have these animals that lay an egg Oh, but monotremes. So monotremes. Like echidnas. Yeah, so they're in Australia, I think, only exclusively, aren't they? Monotremes? Yeah, yeah I think so. Echi what, what are they? Echidnas and a platypus? Platypus, yeah. They yeah. lay eggs, but they also have mammary glands. Yeah, so it's not actually mammary glands per se. It's oh. kind of like a milk patch. Okay. So it's just an area where milk kind of just um, comes out of the skin and the babies kind of have a odd-shaped nose. Uh, I'm not looking at you, Michael. Oh, well, thanks, mate. Um, <laughs> waiting for that. <laughs> and just ingests that fluid. 
for a period of time. And for both nutritional and immunological benefit. Yes, exactly. Right. And a really interesting part of that is they found that if you as a newborn, okay, yeah. if, if you can now ingest milk for let's say a year, two years, you don't require to develop permanent teeth to then ing- uh, you know, to ingest foods, to break down foods, etc. Yeah. So the advantage of that, if you don't need to put your permanent teeth out, your skull d- isn't set in its um, size. So, um, therefore, th- the baby has the capacity to expand its skull for, for the next year ah, or so. So, if teeth have to grow early, then it means it's basically like laying the concrete and, s- and yeah. setting the size of the skull. Right. It can't get any bigger once the permanent teeth are in. Yeah, that's right. But if the teeth take a little bit longer to get in, then skulls more malleable can get a little bit larger. Exactly. So, you're saying that for us, coming out, as newborns, which were probably undeveloped, really, if you think oh, about it. Well, if if you look at if you look at us coming out at, after nine months or so, we the only reason why we come out after nine months is we we all actually come out premature. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about preemie babies coming out at some point prior to that nine months, but in actual fact, if you look at us evolutionarily speaking, we're all premature because we we were supposed to be inside the womb for far longer than we currently are and the reason why we come out earlier is because of the fact that throughout our evolutionary history we went from being on all fours having an open pelvis larger pelvis to standing upright which has shifted our pelvis and shifting the pelvis has meant that the room in order to push that bub out Mm. has diminished and so the bub has to come out a little bit earlier so that they can fit which means bubs coming out basically premature, mm. which is one of the reasons why, as mammals, have a look at other mammals when they're born. They come out, they stumble for a little bit, and they're walking. Yeah, they're moving around. They, they're quite, you know, they are defenseless in a way, but I mean, they still can move and they can run and they can jump and they can do whatever they need to do. But our ba- if I took a little Tia and I were to put her in the corner of a, the room, and I were to do something for an hour and come back, she's still sitting in the corner of the room. She's not going anywhere. She's defenseless. She can't do anything. So we need to have this this milk. We need to help them develop. We need to let their skulls grow. Which is important for brain growth and brain size, which is more intelligence and so forth. Absolutely. Now, we also need to talk, we need to preface this podcast today with a couple of things. First thing is that Matt and I are scientists, and we teach anatomy and physiology. And when we're talking about breastfeeding and lactation, where the impetus to do this podcast was obviously me having a baby and my bub breastfeeding at the moment from my partner. Partner, not Michael. <laughs> not, not me, unfortunately. We would talk about the fact that maybe earlier on I could have lactated. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about the, baby, the history man. of that. Um, <laughs> but I think we need to talk about the fact that we just want to talk about the anatomy and physiology of breastfeeding and lactation. Mm. And we're, we're not talking about this in a way that puts pressure on anybody. We don't want to stigmatize anybody who aren't, doesn't breastfeed or cannot breastfeed. We understand the fact that not everyone has the ability to breastfeed and yep, that definitely. many people find it far more difficult than others to breastfeed. Uh, we just want to talk about it from a simple biological standpoint. So we're going to talk about the benefits of breastfeeding. We're going to talk about any uh, detriments or side effects or contraindications of breastfeeding. We just want to talk about how it happens. We're not laying any judgment whatsoever. That's not our job. That's not what we want to do. Okay? Well you said. agree, Matt? Well said. Okay. In saying that, let's now talk about the embryological development of the breast. So I think just before we get to that, because oh. I just didn't get to finish before <laughs> you butted in and spoke about your own breastfeeding. Go on. Um, I really just wanted to say, which really shocked me when I was looking into this, yeah. was probably the primary function or the primary first selection of lactation was its immune benefit. Yeah. So for survival of priming the immune system for the newborn, making it strong, um, but also probably now given a, a certain constituents for the baby's gastrointestinal system mm. to promote the most advantageous um, biota or the bacteria, which would be the st- probably the b- most beneficial for the baby. Okay. So that's what I found really amazing. And then mm. nutrition kind of came secondary. So nutrition was secondary to the, uh, to to the, the real benefits. immune side of things. 
Okay. And so it's, it's interesting because we always think about it as being, well, if if somebody is um, uh, breastfeeding and solely breastfeeding, so they're not providing any supplements, we always think about it as being there as a nutritional means for the bub, yeah. primarily Which as opposed to immunolog- immunological. Super, super, super important. Yeah. But I was just really shocked on it actually first started with its immune side. So we know that, you know, there is the trans placental migration of antibodies across into the baby in utero. Yeah. But then they're not getting that anymore. So it's coming now from the mother. And also it's important for lining all the surfaces of where the milk would come into the baby with protecting the mucosa. So all those mucosal membranes, such as going from the mouth down the esophagus to the intestines yep. and so forth. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's my part. Yeah. That that's cool. Yeah. Okay. So now, in terms of embryology, so how it actually developed in us. Yeah. So basically, at about uh, I'll be guessing about eight weeks, um, it's just come from the skin. So it's a skin um, derivative. So the skin comes from the ectoderm in the baby or the utero in, in utero. Um, and so the actual start of the mammal, gla- mammal gland is uh, just a bud, like a condensation of ectoderm just on the front surface of the baby. Yeah. And then what happens is a duct system kind of goes into the body and that's just like a one, one or two ductal parts. So just some hollow tubes. Yeah, nothing really changes. But then um, as the mother's hormones increase, so placental hormones, so these, what placental hormones would these be, Mike? Oh, these would be progesterone, estrogen. Mm. Yep. They start to go up. Prolactin starts to go up. So the actual baby's breast um, starts to develop this way as well. So they start to get certain ductal formations. Oh, from the progesterone and estrogen that are... Mother. So strangely enough, while mother has bub in utero, yeah. the progesterone and estrogen that are being produced from the placenta yeah, isn't just helping the early... Um, uh, lack the lactogenesis of the mother's breast right. but is also helping the embryological development of the, of baby. the baby's breast. Yeah, that's right. Male and female? Male and female. Okay, and keep so, going. And so when the baby's born, the baby's highly exposed to all the mother's hormones. So there is potential that the baby can really early um, lactate. Male or female? Male or female. And that at, what, at what stage? Like as soon as they're born? Yeah, basically as soon as they're born. But and what would be the stimulus? That's uh, all the hormones from the mother. Okay. And so that's called, I think w- they call that witch's milk. I'm ah. not sure where that came from. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. So as soon as the baby's born, then the placenta follows and the yeah. mother's hormones shift and the, the baby loses those ductal systems and it kind of regresses back. Mm-hmm. And then ba- basically the sexes are the same. So male and female's breast is almost identical up to puberty. Okay. Right? Because the, because they are hormonally driven. Hormonally, defo- should, yep, should right. we should we make the statement? Should we highlight to the listeners about um, uh, from where and at what stage progesterone and estrogen are released from individuals? So, because we need to talk about so throughout the menstrual cycle, yep. estrogen and progesterone are produced. So estrogen is produced from primary secondary follicles, right. and progesterone is produced from the corpus luteum once ovulation has occurred. Which is like the eggshell. Which is like the eggshell, basically. So, which means that estrogens produced quite early on in the menstrual cycle. Yeah. So, from between day two-ish up until around about day 13-ish, you've got some estrogen that's been released. Mm. Then you've got progesterone being released at around about day 14 onwards for about 10 days to about day 24. And this release through the menstrual cycle, does this have any effect on breast development for the for the uh, individual the, just the going f- through puberty for the, the female the female, for the female going through yes, puberty yes yes okay that's right exactly so just pause one second there are f- to, to actually have the physiology of lactation i just want to point this out now there's four main hormones involved okay there's estrogen there's progesterone there's prolactin and there's oxytocin all right the, so just keep them in mind listeners and we'll, we'll get to them. And all those four put together gives you a mature breast and actually the ability to actually finally produce milk. So do you want to do a quick soundbite as to very generally what each of those hormones do? I know that they play... I know that especially for estrogen and progesterone, their function is quite broad. Okay, but so... But what about prolactin and oxytocin? Well, 
it's a lot of it's in the name. So start with progesterone. Yeah. Progestation. Yeah. So it's supporting gestation. So that's pregnancy. Thickens the uterine lining. Right. And gets the endometrium ready for implantation. Yep. Allows it to implant and stay implanted. Okay. Estrogen. I'm not sure what that word derives from. It's oh, good job. It's an, it's an own. So it's I thought steroid. you were great. I thought you loved your uh, <laughs> your Latin derivatives. So it's like testosterone. So it's androgen-based steroid. Anyway, yeah. so move to prolactin. It's in the name again. So prolactation. Yeah. Okay. And then oxytocin. Uh, and then Michael will explain that word, oxytocin. Will I, <laughs> will I explain it? Anyway. Are you going to explain oxytocin? I don't know either. Uh, the der- but you haven't said what oxytocin does. Oh, oxytocin <laughs> is the milk let down, so it actually gets the milk out of the breast. So the difference between pro- prolactin and oxytocin is that prolactin helps to produce the milk and oxytocin helps to eject the milk. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Very good. Thank e- you. Excellent, Michael. <laughs> so back to the uh, puberty state of the female. Yep. Um, estrogen, which is, as you said, is secreted from... The oocyte, the developing oocytes. Yeah. So that's the de- developing eggs. Yeah. Each menstrual cycle. Okay. So the follicular stage. Okay. So this is going to bu- bump up the estrogen levels. What happens here in project? In, sorry, in puberty, is estrogen primarily has an effect on um, elongating, so lengthening the ductal system in the breast. Yeah. So they're the things that carry the milk. Okay. They might be also known as lactiferous ducts or milk ducts. But also promotes uh, fat, adipose tissue in the breast, and this gives the breast the bulk. So, how much of the bulk? Oh, you say the bulk, but uh, like eighty to eighty-five percent of the size of the breast is fat. Oh, okay. Okay, so women who have larger breasts, it's generally because of fat content, adipose okay. content. Gotcha. Okay, which is more strongly selected for by estrogen, but. When it comes to breastfeeding, the that fat content or the size has no difference. No difference. So, a, so a female with smaller breasts, um, she should not feel that she is un- incapable of lactating or breastfeeding. breastfeeding. Um, she has the same amount of um, lobules uh, or so milk-producing milk producing cells. Yeah, milk-producing um, primary areas. Cool. As a, a female with a larger breast. Okay. Okay. So that's what estrogen d- does. Yeah. Progesterone, which comes in the latter half of the menstrual cycle, it actually causes the ductal system to branch out, producing the uh, milk-producing cells, which is in the what we call the alveoli. This is not in your lungs. This alveoli like just means kind of um, dilated ducts. Oh, okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so that's the main hormones that develop the breast. And then obviously, as you move through puberty, or the female moves through puberty, breast gets larger, etc., and then have the capacity to be able to produce milk. Okay, so let's then say that a uh, female gets pregnant. One final thing. Yeah. Um, the other thing the breast does have in the female mm. is what we call um, Cooper ligaments, yeah. which gives on the upper portion of the breast, it gives the breast support, particularly once it starts to produce milk, and it stops it hanging down, I guess. So, where are their attachments? Their attachments is um, across to the skin. So, it kind of comes across and attaches to the front kind of fascia of the breast. Mm. At, so, the, the most anterior or front part of the breast, just under the skin. Yeah. And moves back through the ductal system, supporting all the ducts. Yeah. Because there's 15 to 20 ductal lobes in the breast. So, is it attached to the pectoral or not? The fascia of the pecs. So, in your pec muscles, okay, it kind of attaches to their fascia. Okay. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because it holds the breast and that gives the shape of female breasts. So, the shape of their breast, not the size, is due to these ligaments. What are they called? They're called... Uh, Cooper's. Cooper's ligaments. Okay. And finally, this is just a clinical point, if there was to be um, a primary tumour um, or breast cancer, sometimes the cancer actually will cause these ligaments to become taut and that will retract the skin and sometimes the early sign of breast cancer is kind of dimpling or um, the breast starts to have... Shifting? Not shifting, but it kind of has indentations oh. kind of in it and that can be a sign of breast cancer because oh, of okay. the ligaments. Oh, okay. that's interesting. All right. So, let's now say that the, the mother or the female is pregnant. Yeah. Okay. So, let's let's say that 
Um, obviously, there's been a fertilized egg implanted into the endometrium. Yep. What's happened is that, obviously, for a short period of time, the progesterone and estrogen is still being produced by that corpus luteum up until the the point in which the placenta is now sufficient and the placenta now is what's taking over in regards to producing progesterone and estrogen. Yeah, and high, high amounts of it. High amounts. Now, does this have an effect on... So, the mother's obviously gone through puberty because she's now pregnant. Mm -hmm. Now, the mother's breast needs to get prepared for milk production for when bub's born. So, how do the levels of estrogen and progesterone and maybe prolactin and oxytocin as well, what's going on there with those hormone levels to really get uh, the breast ready for partuition, for when bub's out? Okay. So, as far as I'm aware, the high levels of progesterone and and estrogen will go up into the hypothalamus, Mm -hmm. which is some deep structures of the brain. Yeah. Master control center of the endocrine system. Yep. And the anterior pituitary gland, which produces prolactin. So, I think they're called lactotroph cells, Mm -hmm. meaning um, trophic means growth. Mm -hmm. So, lac growth cells. And... The estrogen progesterone goes to them and tells them to kind of, look, something's developing here. We need some um, prolactin, please. Okay. And I think also, generally the hypothalamus, correct me if I'm wrong here, Mike, but I think generally... I always do. <laughs> I think the hypothalamus, I think this pathway is the only one where there's constant inhibition. Otherwise, um, if you take off the inhibition of the hypothalamus, prolactin would just release. Yeah, cause there's, so there's prolactin inhibiting... Signals. Yeah, which is dopamine, I think. I think that's dopamine from the hypothalamus causes the inhibition of the prolactin cells in the pituitary gland. Mm-hmm. So, not only does the estrogen progesterone tell the anterior pituitary to start secreting more prolactin, but I think it also inhibits that inhibitor from the hypothalamus. Okay. So, prolactin starts to bump up now. Yeah. Okay. So, what prolactin will do, prolactation, it starts to develop, I guess, the actual milk-producing cells in those alveoli or lobules of the breast. Okay. And so it primes it, yeah. gets it ready. However, what does progesterone do to prolactin before the baby's born? What? It uh, inhibits the actual secretion. So there's not actually... Probably minus a bit of... Um, so we need to define secretion versus excretion here. When we say secretion, milk secretion, we're not talking about it coming out of the nipple. Milk secretion is simply milk production in the mammary glands. Mm. Milk excretion is milk ejection from the mammary glands. Okay. So when Matt says it inhibits milk secretion, it means the high levels of progesterone that's coming from the placenta is actually inhibiting milk production at this point, which means that milk production will only finalize so what's happening at the moment with these levels of progesterone and estrogen prolactin and so forth is that the breast is getting ready to produce milk yeah. but it's not producing milk yet it will only do it once these progesterone these high progesterone levels have dropped, dropped. which means how are these high progesterone levels going to drop the placenta needs to disappear that's right so that's that means once partuition has occurred and bubs out placenta comes with it yep. and once that placenta is gone Progesterone levels significantly drop about tenfold and then takes a couple of days, three, four days, so 48, 72 or so hours before the milk production occurs. And this is why after Bub's been born, it takes a couple of days for milk to come through. Yeah, this is what so we realized when, when Kel obviously gave birth to little Tia. Tia. So I think there might be slight leakages during pregnancy for the female, yep. but generally the volume won't be there. Yeah. So as you said... Um, once the baby's born and then the placenta is delivered shortly after, mm-hmm. that um, the high levels of estrogen, uh, but particularly progesterone, is out of the mother's blood system now and the prolactin is now full dominant and now milk secretion can occur. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now, so we've got these alveoli cells which are producing the actual milk constituents. Mm-hmm. Um so they are little cube-like cells yep. that are located um, at the kind of the distal end or the top end of the ducts. Yeah. And they will produce... It's not like milk isn't just a homogenized solution. Okay. It comes out in 
parts. Yeah. Okay. So the prolactin, or what we should probably say here, something has to further um, tell the mother's um, endocrine system or nervous system that there is a demand for milk. Yes. Okay. Yes. So there's something that the baby has to do to then drive this process further. So to get milk to come out. Yeah. Yeah. So suckling. Suckling. Yes. So that would tell you in, or on the breast, in the breast, around the external breast, mm-hmm. the areola, which is kind of that. Um, so you've got the nipple and you've got the, the, the plate. How do you describe it? Yeah. The, the, the round plate, which is a darker color. Yeah. Particularly that color should darken in um, pregnancy mm-hmm. compared to what it was before pregnancy. Um, so in that is a, a very rich um, area of nerve cells mechanico nerve cells. That's right. And so once the baby starts to suckle, it stimulates this. Sends afferent signals up to the hypothalamus, telling the hypothalamus, hey, tell the posterior pituitary gland to release oxytocin. Yeah, so then this is different. So this is where the final one comes in, which is oxytocin. Mm. Which is there for milk ejection. Right, or that sometimes they call that milk letdown. Yeah. Okay, so now what happens is around the avioles, so we've got the big ducts, and at the end of the ducts, we have the lobules and alveoli, okay? But around the outside of those are these special muscle cells, okay? And they squeeze these ducts like um, contractions. Mm. And so this like is... Like a baster. When you're basting something, you've got the little pump at the end of it, and you squeeze that and it starts to yeah. push stuff out of it. The oxytocin tells that muscle to contract, contract. to squeeze everything out, which makes sense because oxytocin also tells the uterus to contract when it's time to give birth. So, so oxytocin right. plays a role in smooth muscle contraction. contraction. Brilliant. Yeah. So when it's a positive feedback too, Matthew. What positive that, feedback what does system. That mean? Well, negative feedback is when where uh, once the effector comes into play. So once you've produced, let's say, oxytocin. Uh, so. so um, uh, let's talk about temperature regulation. Okay. If we talk about temperature regulation, let's say you go outside, it's cold, yep. and what do you do is the cold temperature is the stimulus, tells your temperature receptors it's cold, sends a signal to the brain, brain goes, bloody hell, it's cold, what should I do to warm up again? And you shiver, and then you'd negate the initial stimulus. Oh, That's goes negative the feedback, way. goes the opposite way. Right. Positive feedback, you is exacerbate the stimulus. Right. So for oxytocin release, uh, with the suckling, Makes more milk. Makes more milk. Uh, more oxytocin, more oxytocin, more oxytocin, more ejection, more ejection. Once baby stops suckling, that's where the stimulus stops. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's basically driven by demand. So yep. the more milk out, the more production of milk. That's right. Okay. So the baby latches on mm-hmm. um, to the lateral margins of the nipple mm-hmm. around the areola yep. and causes a mechanical stimulus mm-hmm. which goes through the breast into the... Uh, thoracic wall up into the brain goes to the hypothalamus and tells the hypothalamus that there is some activity down there Mm -hmm. so it then goes to a different part of the pituitary gland this time it's posterior to secrete oxytocin oxytocin then goes to the breast which causes contraction of those muscle cells which pushes the milk out is that right? perfect brilliant now should we talk so we're talking milk but remember that once bub comes out for the first couple of days colostrum is yeah, what, what is what is that? I don't know what that is. Tell okay, me. so colostrum is basically this nutrient-rich fluid. Now, compared to milk, it's got less lactose and basically no fat, but it's easily digestible and it helps the baby to survive until that milk comes in after a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what that colostrum is. So this thin, cloudy fluid that the mammary glands produce. And I think so. It's got important... Which my bub spewed up a lot of. Did it? And it's quite yellowy in substance. Uh. Yeah. So I think it primes the gastrointestinal tract like we spoke about before. Yeah. It, it can select for certain good bacteria to then promote further digestion, probably for the milk digestion to come. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, and you might have found this anecdotally mm. with you, mm. um, the colostrum has a laxative effect as well. So it causes, Tell me about it. It causes the baby to pass the first stool, yeah. I believe, which is? Meconium. Meconium, yeah. Yeah. And that's this black, tarry, sticky. I've never seen anything as sticky as this. And it comes out, a lot of it comes out. Okay. And so that meconium came out for a couple of days. 
about two or so days, two or three days. And then once the milk came through, which is after, I'll tell you, after three to four days, Kel's milk came through. And then the color of the poo drastically changed from this black tar to this greeny color to then what looks like a mustardy yellow with chunks of what looks like curdled milk. Oh, wow. And it begins to smell a little bit. (laughs) Great imagery. Well, so, so that, this, this is life, isn't it? So I think that leads us to our last point before we bring the expert in mm. on just the main constituents of the milk itself. Yeah. So from my understanding, it's kind of like if you picture the cells that produce the milk, they're little box-shaped cells. Yeah. Okay. On, on their base, so on their bottom surface is where you have, say, the blood vessels, which is going to bring all the nutrients in. Uh, and on the other surface is where the actual constituents come out and goes into the ducts, which then is squeezed out through the help of oxytocin out to the, through the nipple into the mouth of the baby. All right. Now, so there's like a five pathway, five separate pathway systems that produce the constituents for the milk. Okay. So it's not like it just shoots out like a white fluidy stuff that you see in a bottle of cow's milk it actually comes in kind of different parts. So there's like a, a fatty part, there's the aqueous part, there's the immune part, there's the ion part. Okay, so let's go through it bit by bit then. The immune part, primarily composed of immunoglobulin A, right? Yes. Now, immunoglobulin A is, you know, you get immunoglobulin Gs and Es and so forth. And Don't th- some, of the, some of the listeners might know really what these are, yeah. but there are... Antibodies? Antibodies, they prime the immune system, get them ready for... So, as an example, immunoglobulin A will prime our granulated immune cells. So, these are all the fills, right? All the white blood cells that end in fill, like eosinophils, basophils, and so forth. They've got granules inside. And what happens is IgAs prime these cells to burst, and when they release, they stimulate the immune system to start phagocytosing, eating up, pathogens, anything that shouldn't be there. That's one thing that it does. But it also helps line the mucosal surfaces and and helps prepare that for immunological response. That's what IgA does. And probably also uh, because the, the mother's lived, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, she has memory to many infections. Yeah. Many bacteria, many viruses, many harmful things. And so she's got immunity against it already. And so the baby hasn't just been born. Yeah, that's so right. So the baby's now exposed to all these harmful things. Yep. And so um, the baby could be exposed to... Because we're always exposed to things, but we, our immune system just knocks it off without us becoming sick. So therefore, the, the mother is now producing these specialized um, antibodies to be shot out through the milk to, tell the, to help the baby's immune system to fight off these infections. Yeah. That's fair? That's fair. And so this is one pathway, and this is kind of a transcellular pathway, which is straight across the cell into the um, ducts. Okay. What else is produced? Another one is like the aqueous pathway, which has got the proteins, the milk proteins, which is, I think, casein. Yeah, casein's the major milk protein. Okay. Um, It's also got lactose in there. Yeah. It's also got... But lactose um, is a sugar. sugar. And it's also got calcium in there. Okay. And the, we need to know that we need to state that the lactose concentration drastically changes when you're shifting from the earlier phases of milk production to the later phases of milk production. So you, you start off with little lactose and move into greater Much amounts more. of lactose. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So y- you have these rapid changes that are occurring in the first four days, um, and so uh, you get this change in permeability of the paracellular pathways, and it results in a shift from high concentrations of sodium and chloride yep. and protective immunoglobulins and lactoferrin, but there's little lactose and there's no casein in the colostrum. So, the so f- little stuff protein, the first couple little of days. sugar. That's right. So a lot but more proteins. Yes, that's right. And then as we move through past, past day four into day five, when you're getting the proper amount of milk that's coming through, yep. so starting off from about 100 mils in the first 24 hours to about 500 mils after about five days, that's when you start getting increased lactose. So increased sugars, increased proteins, mm. and decreased sodium, decreased chloride, and so right, forth. Right, okay. So we've got um, the proteins, we've got the sugars, um, we've got calcium, we spoke about the immunoglobulins, but then we've also got fat, so there's these globules of fat that get kind of um, secreted off into blob, little blobs, fat blobs, Yeah. Okay. and they get popped off into the, the milk as well. Yeah. But I think it's important to note that um, in a feed, 
So when little T is feeding, mm. um, as the oxytocin's being secreted from her suckling, um, the ducks has already got milk in it or fluid in it. Yeah. And probably the start of, of the feed is more aqueous, so it's much more um, watery. It is, yeah, and absolutely. So the f- and the fat comes a bit later on. That's right. And so the start of the feed... You can tell that. You can tell. So the start of the feed should be more fluidy and then the latter feet would be much thicker. Yes. And so that would give the baby uh, the feeling of fullness, which is called... What's the word for that? What? Fullness. Satiated. Yeah, okay. That's I just couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> you can't pronounce a lot of words. I know. <laughs> okay, and uh, ooh, anything else? Well, I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll leave uh, some of the other stuff for when Rose comes in, and uh, we'll have a discussion about... Uh, Breastfeeding lactation and some of the social implications and some of the so I think we've well, I pros think we've and cons. Pretty much the A and P, would you say? I think we've so covered pretty much the A and P. How the breast was selected for yeah. out of evolution, I think that was really interesting. Yeah, that it was if primarily you do say so yourself. <laughs> that was primarily driven by its immune benefit, not and its then nutritional and then benefit. Nutrition came second. Um, how it evolved, well, how it adapted, no, adapted, evolved. How it came about in the embryo. Yeah. So um, the sexes were the same, and then um, puberty and so forth changed. How lactation occurred in a physiology point of view, but. I've got a quick question before we get our expert in. Yeah. Um, do males, so the male sex, can we lactate, Michael? I think given the right stimulus, yes. Yeah. Good. How? So, what is the stimulus? So, um, in some species, I think there is one species, a bat in Malaysia, that can lactate and will lactate for the young. Yeah. Okay. But male I, bat. Male bat. Um, but I think there are some uh, species of um, livestock that have been inbred to a degree, like goats and so forth, that can, the male goat can actually lactate. And what's the stimulus? Do, do they need progesterone and estrogen to Yeah, the I think glands? they need still the hormonal um, uh, you know, activation and so forth. But I do believe... I haven't investigated this deeply. No, typical. But How's <laughs> this for evidence-based research, guys? But I did read that in... Uh, a starvation state uh, and then once we go from a starvation state into a, a fed state um, there is a, m- a poor imbalance of the hormones okay. because the liver's really been knocked out mm. and so therefore the liver's not controlling the hormonal balance and so in males um, the, the glandular tissue um, recovers very quickly the liver doesn't so so in the males we have estrogen yeah okay of course and so Therefore, I'd imagine the estrogen levels in the male is Boost higher, a little bit. And that will cause prolactin release and then they can actually um, lactate to a degree. Wow. Okay. So, there is potential for males because we have all the anatomy, all the parts to it. We just, I guess, have turned it off because there's no benefit for a male to lactate, I guess, okay. for survival. Yeah. Makes sense. All right, Mike, I think it's time for the expert. What do you reckon? Yes, we now have joining us Rose Townley. Now, Rose is a clinical midwife at Marta Mothers Hospital in Brisbane and a registered nurse. She's got a Bachelor of Midwifery and a Bachelor of Nursing and an immunisation certificate and is an adjunct tutor. Welcome, Rose. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. Now, we wanted to have a discussion about uh, breastfeeding for mothers and for bub. And I just wanted to start off by saying that I was reading that the World Health Organization recommends that exclusive breastfeeding, so that's breastfeeding without supplements or anything like that, should be for the first six months and continued through to at least 12 months with subsequent weaning uh, as a mutual decision by both mum and bub. And that historical and physioanthropological data actually suggests that it's only been the past 100 years that we have breastfed children below three to four years of age. We've actually breastfed children for many years. Now, from your experience, from what you know, how feasible is it to, first of all, breastfeed a, breastfeed a child for six months to 12 months? And is it even feasible to breastfeed a child up to three to four years? Um, well, answer is yes to all of those questions. Like, ideally, we'd, um, it's, it's preferable that women breastfeed up until the age of six months. And if they can go further than that, that's ideal for the, the mother and the baby. Um, so, ideally, 12 months. It's not always the case. There's a number of factors that can come into play, whether a woman can breastfeed for that long or whether they can breastfeed at all mm-hmm. or whether they can only breastfeed for a very short period of time. I think the important thing there is, is if they can do it, 
you know, we do encourage it and we want to support women in, in their choice of breastfeeding or if they can't support them in their other um, methods that they can um, provide nutrition to their children. So how important is it um, as soon as Bub's born, what, is, there a, is there a time frame in which Bub needs to get onto the boob in order to stimulate lactation and, and, and promote breastfeeding? Is there a window in which if it's missed, nothing's going to happen? There, ideally, it's, it is preferable to get babies straight onto mum's chest straight after delivery yep. where they can have a bit of skin to skin that helps to stimulate the hormones and then start that whole routine reflex that the babies um, have. Mm. So they then are searching for the breast and have that first feed. We do find that first feed is the most effective feed um, for the baby and then there may be a slight decline for a, a very short period of time uh-huh. but then they establish that breastfeeding. But saying that, if a woman can't breastfeed straight away with their baby that's not going to stop them from lactating okay okay so is there because just from my experience obviously n equals one mm-hmm. last week little baby tia coming along um kel went through every sort of labor possible she i mean every sort of procedure trying to get bub out so she had a about a 20 hour labor tried to deliver um naturally tried to push Nothing's coming out. Bub was OP, so flipped around the other way, looking upwards, tried to do a forcep delivery. Wasn't happening. Bub's just not fitting that way. Then went out the sunroof, C-section, and as soon as Bub came out, I grabbed a hold of her, and she started trying to suckle at my breast, and we put Bub straight onto mum, and she started suckling, thankfully. Now, is this... Is this does, from what you see, do most babies have this suckling reflex as soon as they're out or is, is it quite variable from what you see from bub to bub? It can vary depending on a number of factors. So things like gestation. So are they mm-hmm. you know, effectively a preterm that's been delivered or are they you know, term baby um, or overdue? There can be a number of different things. Things that have happened in the delivery um, can have potentially an effect on initiating that first feed. So it's stress. If, if, yeah. if it's been a stressful delivery or mum's been stressed or bub's stressed that may impact That's whether they latch. Yeah. Mm. And, and you know, you've got babies, there's some babies that will have a terrific first feed and then they're really sleepy and they're really hard to feed for that first 24 hours mm. and then they wake up and go, oh, okay, I know what I'm doing now and they get on with the job of feeding and there's other babies that aren't satisfied and they just want to you know, feed straight away and they keep doing that. So they're all different different things will impact you know if they've had for example um forceps or a vacuum extraction they potentially can have a sore head that mm. can impact on their feeding because they're sore um so there's a number of things that can come into play there um if you're looking at you know resuscitation that can affect as well you know yeah. their energy levels so th- um it's not clear cut of course and so i think it's again important for us to make the statement that even though breastfeeding is important nutritionally, immunologically for, for the bub, that it just isn't as easy for everybody. No, definitely not. You know, like some people will have, you know, they'll, they'll work it out and they it just all comes quite easily. Others will have more difficulty. And that's not to say that they're doing anything is wrong there's a number of different things that can come into play there as well things on how the baby latches have Mm. they got a big enough mouth anatomy of the the woman's breasts and nipples Um, so all of those things can actually affect how um, successful someone can actually start off with breastfeeding and it's also extremely it's like it's hard it's hard work Um, you know women are tired they've been laboring or you know they've they're um, recovering from an operative procedure and so and then you've got this this little uh, person that's wanting to feed and every couple of hours so you know lack of sleep and and those things can have a a, can play a part as well as pain Um, so it's it takes time for it to be really established. And yeah. so we try to encourage that with the women. We try to support them in establishing the breastfeeding if that's what they're wanting to do. From what I've seen with, with Kel, my partner, I mean, it's, it's basically you tell the woman to run a marathon and then you'd say, okay, now you, after you finish the marathon, don't sleep and now use whatever energy you have left and give it to somebody else. And it's just women shift, like you said to me, Matt, they, sh- they shift into another gear. A gear that we, I just don't have. I don't, don't know how mums do it. I take my hat off to them. Um, and my partner's just shifted into this next gear and is just, you know, luckily feeding quite well. 
but is just exhausted. It's that exhaustion. Yeah. It's just everyone's tired. Bub's tired. Mum's tired. Um, me to a lesser extent. I don't have to breastfeed, so I'm lucky <laughs> in regards <laughs> to that. Um, so, um, Maddie, do you have any particular questions you'd like to ask Rose? Well, I was talking to my mum about this um, earlier. She's my mum's part of ABA, which is Australian Breastfeeding Association, yep. and she actually made it. And she part of her um, volunteering job is to go out and help um, with new new mothers and so forth. But she made an interesting comment that um, society's changed a great deal in terms of, you know, in say when she was a child, and then before that, and before that, um, there were really big families. Yep. So you you know siblings would have exposure to their siblings being breastfed Mm -hmm. and actually see the process involved. But now in more our day, in the millennials and so forth, we don't generally see breastfeeding in society or from our uh, siblings and so forth. So maybe we have that lack of exposure to what's involved behind it. So do you see that where we just don't have that or many new mothers just don't exactly know what's involved? Potentially. I think what can happen is, um, with the way society is, is when you've got social media and those type of pressures, you know, a lot of um, the new mums that are coming through, you know, they've gone through high school, they've, you know, potentially, you know, well-educated women and, you know, they put a lot of expectations on themselves that they Mm. should be able to do this successfully straight away and they don't realise that it is a lot of work. Mm. Like, you are feeding that baby regularly. Um, You need to feed a baby between 8 to 12 times in 24 hours. And so, initially, after delivery, that's, you know, there's not a lot of time there to sleep in between feeds when some feeds can last for quite a while. Um, So... Sometimes I think the expectations, not realising that it is... is a lot of hard work. A lot of hard yeah. work that they do st- do struggle with it. And then all that is normal. Yeah. Because they might actually feel in themselves that this is abnormal, I'm different, yeah. it's not and working for me, I'm stressed. That's right. And it is extremely normal. And I still always reflect back on my first experience with breastfeeding. And it was very difficult. You know, lots of things happening, tired, um, attachment issues. Am I doing this right? Confidence issues. And that's a lot of the experiences that a lot of women actually have. And they don't realise that if they actually spoke to the person next to them who's also breastfeeding, that they're experiencing those same things. Well, that's something, again, I'm I'm going back to my experience because Bub's new. Um, The fact that... Everything, everything that the mum's doing, especially if it's their first bub, is new. Like it's 100% new. Right. There's no practice to breastfeeding up until bub comes. Yep. And so whatever's happening, you're experiencing it for the first time. And sometimes you may have this preconceived idea as to what it should be. For example, a lot of mothers will come in and say, all right, I'm giving birth at this particular point. This is how I want my, my um birth to happen I'm not going to take any drugs I'm going to deliver it naturally and then everything flies out the window you have a c-section you take have an epidural and whatever it may be and so you have expectations and then sometimes those expectations aren't met and I think that's when a lot of people get let down because they feel as though it's not going to plan it hasn't worked but it's not that it hasn't worked it's just that Every plan is different. Yeah, that's right. And plans, well, you know, in, with with labour, it's things can happen very, very different. You know, very rapidly, things can change, and interventions yeah. need to occur. Um, and with breastfeeding, it is a le- it's a learned process. When the baby first starts to feed, it's learning how to feed. It's learning how to mm. attach. Um, it's learning how to do that sucking of nutritively. Um, and the mum is learning. The mum's learning how to attach their baby independently. They're learning how to hold their baby properly. What mm. works for them? What position is the most viable, viable position mm. for them to effectively feed? And so some women may find that they can't actually sit in a chair and feed and they have to lie, lie down to feed their baby. And that's fine it's whatever works for them to be able to do it successfully oh good right we so just quickly before we move on to you know some of the benefits of breastfeeding and then some of the Mm -hmm. contraindications so when when should mothers potentially not breastfeed uh i think we should point out the fact that when bub first comes out and they got the colostrum and they're feeding and it's it's volume wise it's not a huge amount first 24 hours probably 100 ish mils and then moving on to after about five days upwards of 500 600 mils of milk um that it's very difficult for mothers to be able to gauge their milk production 
how right. much milk yep. they're producing because you can't actually see it's going straight from the breast into the bub and you don't know whether you're producing that 500 mils mm-hmm. or 150 mils. So how does a mother know what are the objective measures that a mother can use to know whether she's producing enough milk for bub? Okay. Well, in those early stages, we go by a lot of urine output. So if you, if you equate it to day one, one wet nappy, day two, two wet nappies, day three, wet, three wet nappies, day okay. four, four wet nappies, day five, mm. five wet nappies. From then on, when they've gone into that transitional milk phase, they should be producing more you know, more wet nappies. We should be seeing stool stools being passed and the change in, in the colour of their their stools as well. Which Mike so like pointed out. Yeah, I pointed out <laughs> earlier it starts off with this black tarry stuff, then goes a little bit green and then goes to this mustard yellow. Yeah, and that mustard yellow it means that breast milk has come through. Yeah. And so it's been you know, it's getting digested and the babies are then actually put in on weight. While it's still in that meconium poo, they're not actually putting weight on. Mm. And so that's why you do see that weight loss in that first couple of days and Which is about ten percent, a bit under ten percent. We like it to be under ten percent. Some babies they don't lose a lot of weight at all, others may lose a little bit more um, but in general it's just under 10% and okay. that's n- to be expected and that should be regained within a couple a week or two um, usually if it, they're exclusively breastfed it can be up to three weeks but you do normally see that um, happening very quickly as soon as that milk's come through yeah. so um, for example if we go and weigh a baby a couple of days after day three we're already seeing that they're starting to rega- you know, put, put weight back on okay. they may not have reached their birth weight but they are starting to go the other way where they're starting to regain weight Perfect. and um, to measure once milk is fully in so when they've got that mature milk you, you should be seeing you know, a number of very good wet nappies during the day and you should be seeing about 100 150 um, grams per week of weight gain in those early weeks oh nice so let's have a look at some of the benefits of breastfeeding so (laughs) i've had a look at a couple of meta-analyses big studies looking at the benefits of breastfeeding and they've stated that breastfeeding is actually beneficial not just for bub but also for mum as well. Definitely. So if we have a look at, maybe if we look at bub first Mm -hmm. and talk about some of the benefits of breastfeeding for bub and then we can look at some of the benefits for mum. What do you think? No problem. Let's start with bub. What do you think, or what it, not what do you think, but what do you know has been some of the major benefits of breastfeeding? Well, it helps with digestion, helps protect the gut flora and helps initiate that immunity for a baby. So you've got passive immunity, um, which can transfer from mum to baby. Um, so that's really, really important. Breast milk has all that nutritional value. So f- and, the, and the gut flora has become a huge thing in medicine in terms of having these beneficial um, bacteria in your um, digestive tract to then cause systemic effects into the body. That's right. And they, they, they do say that it reduces, you know, the incidence of things like Crohn's disease um, later in life for, ch- for children, um, allergies. So mm. it is really beneficial. So are these, are, are these components of the breast milk something that just isn't recapitulated in s- supplement milk? Is this something that we just don't... Yeah, it's, it's in, like you've got um, different things in breast milk that help it digest um, more easily for for um, that absorption of nutrients, you know, um, you know, vitamins, minerals, fatty acids, all of those things that are required. It is all in there in breast milk, and it you know um, in goes a readily di- digestible way too. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. And what about for mum? What's, what's some of the benefits for mum? Well, I suppose one of the really good benefits is that they can get back to pre-birth um, weight fairly quickly pre-baby weight so it helps them when they're um, breastfeeding they do they're using a lot of energy so we do recommend them to have you know normal diet um, healthy diet but they they do end up um, losing you know weight and and um, potentially getting back to that pre-baby weight get rid Mm. of that baby weight they also it helps with getting them back physiologically so it helps contracting that uterus down um, which is what we want it to do when you know after they've delivered yeah i think that's because in part the oxytocin that's released right that's right that's going to help with the milk ejection but Mm. because of its role in smooth muscle contraction helps the uterine contraction to that's right bring it back yeah Cool. That's correct. You've also got the benefit of, you know, mother and baby bonding. You can't put that, yeah, um, yeah. you can't ignore that. It does help that nurturing occur, um, which is really imbo- important for both of them. So we've got, for Bob, we've got some immunological benefits. So yep. protecting Bob, gut flora benefits. We've got nutritional benefits. Yep. For mum, we've got benefits in regards to going back to um, pre-baby weight yep. faster. 
um, some emotional benefits. Are there any links between that you're aware of of postpartum depression and breastfeeding? Um, that's probably a really hard one to yeah. answer because there's It's multifactorial, yeah, I know. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it is because there's a number of things that can come into play there. So you, you can have women that... Um, you know, may have gone through some type of trauma in their life. Mm. So breastfeeding may not actually be appropriate for them because of anxiety issues and could lead to postpartum depression. Yeah. Where other women who have um, a very successful breastfeeding history, it's actually, it can reduce the risk of postpartum depression. So, you know, it's got to be outweighed for whatever's right for the woman and that, that child in that particular instance. I've also read, I read a, a, a meta-analysis that came out in Lancet in last year, 2016, and it stated that for nursing women, breastfeeding actually gave them protection against breast cancer, yep. and it improved birth spacing, so time between next bub, and may potentially protect them against ovarian cancer, maybe type 2 diabetes. They scaled this up, and they said that scaling up of breastfeeding to a near universal level could potentially prevent... 823,000 annual deaths in children younger than five years and 20,000 annual deaths from breast cancer. So this is obviously uh, them extrapolating from what they found in their studies. Yeah. I, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't take this as, uh, as gospel per se, but I mean, it's interesting to, to state that the, the benefits of breastfeeding are probably more expensive than what you're initially think oh definitely so there is a link between um particularly those premenopausal cancers so your mm-hmm. ovarian cancer and breast cancer with breastfeeding um they're they're really beneficial things like you know um calcium uptake so those calcium stores in the mum improving um decreasing the risk of anemia in mum they've also found that um as as benefit and osteoporosis i think that's correct yeah yeah Wow. Well, so from the mother's point of view, um, is there anything she should eat more of or maybe vo- foods to avoid? Well, the mum should have just, you know, really just eat a healthy diet. Um, it's so supplementation, I'm sorry to interrupt because yeah. I got, I, 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 Kelly, my partner, was told um, from one of the midwives to think about supplements and now, and supplementing, vitamin supplements. Yep. Now, I, uh, I know that for individuals who are healthy, have a balanced diet, yep. and are not nutritionally um, or mineral or vitamin deficient in any way, shape, or form, s- vitamin supplements, mineral supplements aren't beneficial. But obviously, a breastfeeding mother who's just given birth and so forth may be deficient in X, Y, and Z. Yep. Is vitamin or mineral supplements something you'd recommend for the breastfeeding yeah, we mother? Yeah, we do recommend. So we recommend women to take you know, vitamin supplements antenatally. So, you know, there's a number of different products out there um, for breastfeeding and um, pregnancy vitamins. And something like that is quite suitable for a woman. And we do recommend that they continue to take that while they're breastfeeding. So if you consider, um, you know, they're using up a lot of energy, the baby is taking a lot of their nutrients and they need to restock those nutrients. If they've had something happen while they were um, in that intrapartum period when they've, you know, done the delivery, say they've had a hemorrhage or something, they're going to be low in iron so having those supplements will help um, re- you know increase their stores again okay. mm. but basically just a balanced diet Th- a balanced diet is the Enough main thing staying away from hydration alcohol keeping mm. drinking water you know have a snack close by when you are breastfeeding because you oh, do get okay that's good hungry. so are there any contraindications for breastfeeding so is there anything that uh, if the mother's got maybe an infectious disease or something like that or certain drugs that would contraindicate yeah there are certain medications and certain um, conditions that someone may have that they can't breastfeed um, and those women need just as much of support as someone who can right. so if you've got for example someone who's a HIV carrier then they can't breastfeed because you don't want that to be transferred across to, to the baby mm. um, if you've got you know someone on anti-epileptic drugs some antipsychotic medications they just can't um, be given or someone who's on um, cytotoxic medications they, right. they can't breastfeed okay because obviously having a c-section my partner's on you know oxycodone mm-hmm. paracetamol, ibuprofen, um, you know, a bunch of NSAIDs and so forth, and still breastfeeding. So, you know, I assume that, you know, liver first pass is fine. It's not getting into the breast milk. Bub's not getting... Tiny, tiny amounts. Small amounts. Very, very tiny, but they're only on those medications for a short period of time. So if you've got someone who's, um, you know, taking illicit drugs, then you wouldn't be recommending that they're breastfeeding um, because of, of passing through to through the milk to the baby. Okay. Any other questions you have, Matt? 
No, I think they've been pretty much answered from my side. Is there anything you'd like to anything you'd like to finalize? Any points you'd like to make? Any any? I suppose the, the big thing to remember, like breastfeeding is really beneficial to women, but not all women can breastfeed for mm. whatever reason. So all of all of those women, whether they feed, breastfeed or choose not to breastfeed, you know, need the same support with whatever decisions they're making and assistance in however they're wanting to feed their babies. Wonderful. Great point. Thank you, Rose. We really appreciate you My coming pleasure. in and having a discussion with us. Uh, for those of you who are listening, just uh, a bit of housekeeping. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Facebook, which is Dr. Matt, Dr. Mark's Medical Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter, which is at GU Biosciences. Or you can send us an email, ask us questions, tell us what you'd like us to talk about next time, which is GUBiosciences at gmail.com. You can also visit our YouTube channel and watch some of our YouTube videos where we discuss a number of different anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology and pharmacology related topics. Thanks everyone. We'll speak to you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.